Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 735th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from Heidi and Greg's farm in Asheville, North Carolina. That is our tentative name. I guess that's the first time I've said it. <laughs> we'll still come up with a different one maybe, but right now that's what we're doing. If you're here on the live event, the picture in back of me is our front yard. And I'm here with Emily. Hello, Emily. Hi, Greg. It's so good to be here from Tucson. And Janice is in the background. Are you starting your first garden? Take heart. Your first garden could be your worst garden. And that means, yes, you can experience a variety of challenges, setbacks, excitement, and successes too. Let's talk about these and what comes next. Emily Rocky studied plant sciences at the University of Arizona, focusing on controlled environment agriculture, that's greenhouses mostly, to optimize food production in indoor greenhouse systems. Then the incredible power of the rich, real soil drew her back outdoors, and she worked on organic farms in Italy and the U.S. for about, what, 10 years, maybe? Oh, I, a little bit. Yeah, that sounds yeah. about right. All right, cool. Mm -hmm. During the 19 years Emily has lived in Tucson, she has worked for a variety of nonprofits and businesses focusing on sustainability, gardening, and promotion of compost and soil health. Prior to her current role at Mission Garden, she worked at Tanks Green Stuff, a local organic compost and soils company. So let's talk a little bit. Tell people what Mission Garden is, because it's pretty cool. You actually went to work there, what, a year, a little over a year ago? Actually, three years ago. Three years ago. And <laughs> I slapped my hand when we talked last time because I didn't really notice the magnitude of the work that you were doing there. So. Thank you for being here and tell us about the Mission Gardens in Tucson. Yeah, little known fact, but Tucson and this exact spot where I'm sitting, this whole river valley here is a UNESCO city of gastronomy. It's only one of two in the United States, San Antonio being the other that's nice for gastronomy. And that is because this place here is so incredibly diverse and very, very old in its continuous agriculture. It's the oldest spot in the whole U.S. Wow. where there's been continuous agriculture. So well over 4,000 years. There's an indigenous tribe here and an, another tribe that settled here around 1900. So the Autumn, Tahana Autumn, the Pascoyaki settled here in 1900 around about. The Spanish came to this area uh, around 1700 and brought a lot of new plants with them. The Mexicans came here, the Chinese came here, the African people came here. And so it's this convergence. So wow. Mission Garden is all about telling the story of this history history of this really special place through plants 
Mm-hmm. and gardens but it's the site of the mission garden the mission san agustin garden and so it's a four acres it's open to the public and we do everything from growing the plants and collecting all these diverse heritage plants both crops as well as trees and growing native plants as well about them we teach about sustainable methods of growing food and we grow everything organically so it's just a really diverse place we have festivals, so please come. <laughs> well, and you have a mesquite bean milling event coming up in June. Mesquite beans are edible, and you teach, I'm sure you teach people how to harvest them, and then they can bring them there and have them milled, right? Yes, it's one of the many, many festivals and events that's happening. Yeah, garlic festival, citrus festival, pomegranates, figs. I mean, wow. it's just amazing right now. Nice. And tonight we're here to talk about your first garden is your worst garden. And so I have a little story to tell. We'll start with that. Okay. Uh, For those of you that don't know, I recently moved from Phoenix where I lived and gardened for over 50 years to Asheville, North Carolina. And I just assumed that I would arrive here and start gardening. The dirt would be so beautiful. (laughs) Right? Exactly. Everything would just work. And my first garden here was a miserable success. Kind of. It was more like a a few things worked, but most things didn't. And when I was on on a call with Zach Brooks from Arizona Worm Farm here last summer, he said to me on, I think he was on with me for uh, Rosie on the House on our Saturday morning show. And he said, Greg, remember, your first garden is your worst garden. I was like, oh, yeah. It had been so long, and I just assumed. And so arriving here, I made some good soil in some pots and in the ground and figured I'd just be good to go. And I had these really high expectations, and they were crushed. (laughs) And so you had a failure, a miserable failure for your first garden. Is that right? Yeah, there. I called it a, I called it a miserable success, but yes, it was a miserable <laughs> failure. It just didn't work. And I've readjusted some things. And some of the things that are different from between there and here is the pest pressure there is truly non-existent. We didn't, in Phoenix, we didn't have pest issues. And here there's an immense amount of pest issues. So I'm learning quickly and you have to take it at heart. And I've said this for years is that gardening is one great big grand experiment. You have to be prepared for the successes and learn from the failures. In fact, that's why on my podcast, on our main episodes of the podcast, I ask people for their biggest failure and what they learned from it. So talk to me about what might have been happening for me, Emily? Oh boy. Well, and when you were just saying that it's a one big experiment, it kind of makes me think of just similarly, if you're studying to be a scientist or if you're a budding scientist, maybe starting off, you don't get everything right the first time. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you. And sometimes you have happy accidents, but oftentimes we need to just be humble. And I think it's wise to go in giving yourself permission to fail. That it's okay. Know that you're not going to have that giant beefsteak tomato that you envision. <laughs> Definitely not, maybe not the first time or maybe not ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, um, and you very well could. You could, but you may not. And I can think of quite a few things that we can talk about today that might be the reasons why and the things that you'll learn along the way. But it's absolutely a learning process and a lot of observation, I think. But probably your head goes the same place as mine is you got to start with the soil. I was going to say it's the dirt, right? (laughs) No, it's the soil. Let's create that distinction. What's the difference between dirt and soil? Yeah, I mean, soil to me is the more correct term because I know that I've heard you also say dirt's what you sweep off of the floor, but (laughs) your soil is alive. A soil is alive. There's many components of soil from the mineral components like the sand, silt, and clay, the chemistry of the soil, meaning your nutrients, think nitrogen, 
phosphorus, potassium, as well as your micronutrients, the stuff you only need in small amounts to make the plants, but are nonetheless really important. No different than in your body. You don't have to take large quantities of zinc or boron or whatnot, but they're nonetheless really important. That Those, are, those nutrients are really critical to healthy soil, but the living part of soil are the, the microbes, the fungi, the bacteria, the beneficials. And then also like the things that you can see with your naked eye think earthworms and other types of little critters ants absolutely people will say to me how do i get rid of the ants but the ants are doing really good work ants are pollinators and they're (laughs) aerators they're actually digging the soil out for us and aerating the soil so i'm gonna i want to actually want to step back here real quick and i like to get this in at least every time i do a lecture and that is what is healthy soil And dirt is one component. Dirt is the broken down rock and it has the micronutrients in it. It has some of the macronutrients in it. It has some of that stuff. But if all you have is dirt, the stuff you're sweeping off the floor, good luck. Yes. And soil isn't built overnight. So that I think is the reason why we start here in a conversation about your first garden it may not be your best garden or <laughs> <laughs> is because you have to start there that's our foundation just like when you're building a house you have to have a really strong foundation so the soil is sometimes called like a soil bank or because you're you need to constantly be feeding and making deposits or mm-hmm. adding organic matter and always treating your soil with respect and with love and care they don't call it garden gold for nothing so valuable and so I think that continuing to cultivate your soil by adding organic material and keeping your soil covered using mulches not and don't expect it to be perfect the first time I always will advocate for using organic methods because that's the way that you're going to be building good quality soil and building organic matter that feeds that web of soil life that we're talking about, the microbes, the fungi, the beneficial bacteria. And those guys, I like to think of as like the spoon feeders to your plants. They're, right? they're like breaking down all of those that those bits of leaves and twigs and decomposing organic material to turn it into soil, humus, black gold. And so that takes time. It's not something that just happens with a miracle grow, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I had somebody I was talking to the other day and they were using miracle grow. And it's like, yeah, there's some organic options that are probably going to be better for your soil. Yeah. So the five components of healthy soil, I started this a minute ago and then we got sidetracked. Dirt, airspace, moisture, water, mm-hmm. organic matter, and everything that's alive in the soil. And you, at one point, about five or six years ago, you told me that there's some really small amount of organic matter in desert soil. Do you remember what that number was that you told me? Yes. I live here in Southern Arizona and it's less than 1% organic matter. And some people might be familiar with that strive for five because it's really a nice sound. And so you do need to increase the soil organic matter to grow many crops that are non-native crops. Think lettuce or broccoli or cabbage or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I like to guide people away from saying that their soil is bad. Your soil is not bad. It's perfect for the native plants. The native plants are like perfectly happy and well adapted. I want to encourage everybody to sort of reconfigure the way that they talk about their Mm -hmm. native soil and increasing organic matter is always important. Yeah. And so Tom just threw something in the chat and this is something that's a really important thing. He said, what about hay for mulch rather than wood chips? Yes. Here's the problem they're running into with hay. Unless it's organic hay, there is probably some kind of persistent herbicides, persistent pesticides, something in it. And so I have pretty much stopped using hay for everything unless I can find organic hay. 
Yes, it's true. And furthermore, if you're getting manure from a source, it does actually pass through the animal. I've heard yep. really awful situations where entire gardens are uh, affected by a small amount of her- persistent herbicide. Yep. Uh, it, I liked, I really liken feeding the garden in the same way as I feed myself. And so know where your food comes from that carries over into know where what you're putting into the garden. Yeah. So Tom also, he said, rather than wood chips, wood chips are a top mulch, like hay can be a top mulch. My, my sense of wood chips, and I've gotten three loads of wood chips here in Asheville so far since we arrived, and I've been using them for different things. But my sense of wood chips is that the pesticides and herbicides aren't going to be in the wood chips like they would be in the straw. Now, I don't know that to be a fact. It just makes sense to me. Well, and I always advocate for using wood chips, which take a long time to decompose and break down. Use those in your perennial beds and on your trees and shrubs and always use organic materials for mulches in your vegetables and your flower beds that are much more routinely turned over or incorporated into the soil. Use those composted mulches. So think about unsifted compost, maybe, where it's like on its way to breaking down and it's mimicking the soil layers. I think of if I'm in a forest and things are on their way to decomposing, like soil boundary, soil mulch boundary, mimic that, like composted leaves. I know we're from all over the country, but here in Arizona, there's not a lot of organic matter just hanging out on top of the soil in a lot of places. So it's hard to draw a comparison, but make sure that in your vegetable beds, you're adding something that's going to break down a little bit faster than a wood chip. Does that make sense? Yeah. When one of the things that I've started doing here for long-term is I've got an area that I have two foot thick wood chips mm-hmm. and it's going to break down over time. And in two years, that'll make some pretty nice, healthy top mulch for my garden beds. Right. So you just have it off to the side, kind of hanging out that you're <laughs> turning sometimes. That sounds perfect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And really that connects back to what we're talking about today is like that it takes time. And for this very reason, why it takes a while for your wood chips to break down is because the microbes need time to decompose them. The fungi and bacteria, especially the fungus, if it's wood, take a while to break it down. And so that's why your first garden, if you just dump everything in there and water it and hope that it grows really well, don't be surprised if it doesn't succeed the first time because the all of those communities need to get together and start building their networks because it's not so much the plants going out and finding what they need, although they do that. It's really the symbiotic relationships that they form in what's called the rhizosphere of the mm-hmm. roots, making connections and linking up with both bacteria and fungi trading plant, giving up their exudates, basically putting out the sugars to the microbes and the microbes saying, I'll trade you for some of these wonderful bits of organic material that I've broken down that are nutrients now for the plant to take up. So that's your cycle and it doesn't happen overnight. When there's all kinds of beneficial relationships that happen between the microbes and the plants and the fungi and all that stuff, right? The fungi, yes, exactly. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with the word mycorrhizae, and that's one example of beneficial fungi. Yeah. But there's so much diversity out there. And so really the bottom line to this section is soil is alive and treat it as such, feed it, continue to add good organic material. Earthworms are awesome. They're going to break down and decompose organic material so that your soil continues to get better and better. And when I worked at Tanks Green Stuff before my time here at Mission Garden, I installed my own garden beds at home and that was not the best garden. I was using really good soil. It was organic. I dumped my garden, filled my garden beds and put the mulch in and planted and it was just wimpy. I knew knew that what the good stuff comes with time. And right now I'm like, 
go into my little greenhouse and it's like the peas are just up to my ears and like the chard and the lettuces and all the herbs. And so that was just a mere five years ago to have faith. Well, and you really get what you pay for when it comes to soil, right? Yes, absolutely. I feel like if you just go the cheap route, you're, you are going to get what you pay for. Absolutely. So invest in good quality soil or build your own soil. Again, your native soil is great. I would say just amend it depending on what you're trying to grow. And this is going to be different depending on each part of the country that you live in or the different parts of the world. And I think it's always a good idea for so many reasons to find experienced gardeners in the area or maybe a neighbor or somebody that knows the area. And that is going to help you immensely. Yeah. I had a very interesting thing happen when I arrived. There's a Facebook page called West Asheville Garden. And for whatever reason, Maybe it's because of who I am on Facebook, what I do, but I got this message about six months after we arrived that said, we need an administrator for this Facebook group. Do you want it? So I all of a sudden plugged into 3,000 people in in West Asheville, and I'm learning a lot that way. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning a lot that way. Carol wants to know what vegetables can grow in clay soil? Anything? Yeah, I think that clay soil is a little misunderstood. There's a lot of varieties that I think will do well, but I think what you really need to do is just add organic material. Mm-hmm. Compost is the perfect balance to to clay, and over time it will break it up a little bit so that you can actually get better drainage. And clay is the particle that holds water really well, as does organic material mm-hmm. compost holds water, but you know, to get some balance in there just keep putting in organic matter but like sweet potatoes for example can do really well certain carrots are really happy to grow in diverse soils it variety is so important and again i just think going back to those tried and trues those heirlooms that are adapted to your garden area. gardening area yeah. and some daikon radishes that are really good at like drilling and breaking stuff up but really organic material is the key for heavy clay soils yeah add lots and lots of organic matter. And so let's talk about organic matter. One of the things that tanks does is they test their compost and planting mixes. And that's tanks. Green stuff is in Arizona. Uh, The company that I've been buying from here is, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank on it all of a sudden, but they're a soil company and they're specifically making and testing soil. And so I've been buying totes of soil from them. And the totes I get Uh, They don't sell it in bulk by the truckload. They only sell it by the tote. So I've been paying about $280 for a cubic yard of their specialty bed mix. But when you think about it, if the tanks raised bed mix that we sell is $15 a bag, and that's for one and a half cubic feet, it's less expensive to buy it in the tote. Yeah. But what I would really suggest that you do is do research in your area for the soil company that's really doing a good job there. Yeah. One way to check for good quality compost is to, there's a nonprofit organization nationwide that's called U.S. Composting Council, and they have a really user-friendly website. You should be able to find somebody in your area that makes compost or make your own. (laughs) You don't have to purchase it, but keep in mind that's even going to take a little bit longer. Uh, But this is something that everybody can access. And if you can't shell out as much as you're, for example, naming Greg, then start small fill a few pots and start small or grow native or desert. I'm sorry, desert adapted. I'm used to talking about it in my area, but like crops that are native or adapted to your region, check out U.S. Composting Council though. And I think that's going to help you to link up to some good soil. Um, Dirtcraft is the name of the company I buy from locally here. And here's one of the things I'm doing. And you said mushrooms, fungi a little while ago, and I wanted to make sure that we don't pass that up. If you have mushrooms growing in your yard, yes, I'm getting emphatic. That is a, it's very, a good thing. 
that's a very good thing. You don't want to kill them. I get these questions from people. It's like, oh, I got mushrooms in my yard. How do I kill them? No, it's a good thing. So <laughs> there's this thing out there called Hugel culture. And I'm putting that into play here. I recently bought some six foot long, two foot tall stock tanks, metal stock tanks, and they're going to be part of my garden beds. I drilled the hole in the bottom, holes in the bottom. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to fill them up two thirds with chips and one third with this great soil. And then I'll plant at the top. We'll see how it goes, but I'll plant at the top. I've had good luck with this before. We'll plant immediately. And then over the course of the next 18 months to two years, that woody mulch on the bottom breaks down to really cool, healthy soil. Have you ever played with that? Uh-oh. You can get into so many different types of layers, different kinds of organic material and who culture. So that sounds great. And really, we're just circling back to that same concept of just allowing the microbes to work their magic over time to build soil. So keep making deposits into your soil bank. Keep adding good quality fertilizer, organic material. Keep mulching on top mm -hmm. with material that's going to break down over time. And it really is like a bank and that organic fertilizer that we're encouraging people to use also doesn't get unlocked overnight. Think about worm castings. Those are pretty readily available, but bat guano or different types of meals, feather meal or kelp or whatnot, all that bone. stuff, bone meal, blood meal. So there's so many different organic fertilizers, but I always recommend just using a good quality, balanced organic fertilizer and continue to use it as directed. Um, and that feeds your plants now and into the future. Yeah. Yeah, but there's exactly. so many things, other things, Greg, I'm really, I'm like excited to talk about because while soil is my favorite subject and is really foundational, there's so many other things that come into play with new gardeners. What do you think? Should we go over some of those too? Yes. Give us yes. some more things to consider. Well, one of them is observation, stand back and watch, right? Yeah, you, I mean, you're getting into this rhythm when you're starting your first garden or a new garden in a new place. And so work out the kinks with your irrigation system. Sometimes stuff doesn't work initially. Mm -hmm. I know I'm actually experiencing that with a new irrigation timer I'm using. And I'm like, wait a second, it's actually not giving the right water pressure. I'm having to dig down and go, wait a second, my, my, my whole root zone isn't actually be becoming fully hydrated. So yeah. observing those things, making sure that all of the systems are functional in a new garden environment. Yeah. Making sure you have your water in play. Um, yeah. <laughs> last week, last week we did the best way to water your garden class with drip tape. Yeah. I'm all about a good drip irrigation, low and slow. <laughs> all right. Um, what else? Well, and I feel like as well, like just observing your conditions, think about sun and shade needs, wind protection, cold spots in your garden. Mm -hmm. I kind of think of it a little bit like when you move into a new house, you're starting a new garden. It's almost like when you move into a new house and, oh, I... I didn't realize that in the winter time, it you know how cold it is, and so you make these changes and additions, and that also can be important to you to observe that you may need to put up some sun protection. You might experience that in a new garden. Get yeah. into that rhythm. Plants really like routine, and and doing things at the same time can be really good for you to develop those observations on how things are doing with water or shade or wind, cold spots, water flow. Where does water really move? You might need to make adjustments in your garden because of slope or things like mm. that. You know, figuring those things out happen often in your first season. Yeah. Can I take a couple questions? Sure. All right. Let's see. Ray says, no, this is for me. Ray, have you contacted your local extension office for a planting calendar? Let me tell you, the local extension office is two miles down the road. I was so excited when I drove in and I have been in communication with a plant for a planting calendar, but I've also been in communication for the local farm rep and the farm rep's been out here and we're working on getting certified as an organic farm here at Heidi and Greg's farm in Asheville. So yes, go in there. 
Suzanne says, what's the difference between determinate and indeterminate tomatoes? Wow, that's a really interesting question. Determinate tomatoes, it, like the name sounds, is they're <clears throat> limited in their, in their growth pattern. They're not going to just keep growing and keep growing, essentially. Indeterminate are going to behave that way. You can vine them and trellis them, and they'll kind of keep growing up. And determinate are going to stay in that bushy shape. Bush. Yeah. Well, and then her next question is, which are the heirlooms? That is a good question. Greg, do you know if most of the heirlooms are determinate? I don't know. Good question. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. but it kind of connects us really to something I wanted to talk about and something that Greg or that Ray just brought up, mentioned a little bit earlier. But for new gardeners, make sure that you're choosing and new gardens are different than new gardeners. Like you, Greg, you're not, not a new gardener. You're just in, in a new place with a new right. garden. Yeah, exactly. Um, but finding the varieties that do well in your region is just so important. So I really wanted to emphasize that and start with the varieties that grow well in your area. So I really appreciate that, especially for somebody that was so used to growing. And I'll use the tomato example I brought up earlier, a big fat beefsteak tomato that they grew when they were in the Northwest or California or whatnot, they just don't do so well here, for example, in the desert because of our big difference between day and night temperature. Mm -hmm. And you can get that cracking as the fruit swells and shrinks with diurnal changes from day to night. So that's the thing I wouldn't really know. But if I talk to people, other gardeners or extension office or those local person-to-person gardener and gardeners, things get passed along. You grow heritage varieties for the area, regionally appropriate, or at the very least, elevation similar yeah. varieties. Yeah. Well, and find yourself a seed company that's local. There's, well, in, in a town of 100,000, there's multiple seed companies here in Asheville. So True Seed is one of them. Oh, they're uh, great. In Arizona, we have Native Seed Search. Yeah. Oh, we so have lots. Find your local seed companies. Yeah. Uh, and heirlooms, you just have to ask when you find a tomato. One of the interesting things that happened for me last May when we arrived here is I walked into this football stadium size plant sale. It was, I walked in and my my jaw just hit the floor how big it was. How and fun. I, yeah, right? And in Phoenix, we'd get maybe five or six varieties of tomatoes being grown. There were some of the booths that had 40 varieties of tomatoes so you know a lot of them are heirlooms you just have to ask that's awesome yeah awesome. you just have to ask anything about cats carrie says stray cats have found my garden should i put a barrier up for them i say yes, yes. <laughs> i think so that's a good idea but yeah. it's like that question couldn't have come at a better time because that's the other thing I really wanted to emphasize is that, and you referred to your own situation, Greg, where you have, you're going to have new critters and new pest pressures. I just um, bought, I just bought a game camera that is arriving tomorrow because <laughs> I, some of my garden beds are being disturbed and I want to know what's disturbing them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I I have a lot of pack rats and cotton rats here, but I know that some gardeners have gopher issues. And so really understanding that you're probably going to have some new pest pressures, be they furry or insect or whatnot, or pathogen. Don't know that you're going to have some powdery mildew because you haven't tried a garden in a, in a more humid place, yep. for example. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, that's what happened to my tomatoes. They wilted. I got tomato wilt and they just, they grew and produced some green tomatoes and they yeah. died. Huh. Oh, man. But I also think I can't pass up the opportunity to acknowledge that critters are great to have in the garden and they can help in many ways to balance out the food system. So right. birds, for example, maybe will peck your tomato and you're just, or eat some of your greens and you're like, gosh, darn it birds. But they're also the balance to a lot of insect pressures. And so it's important to, to think about the whole system. And I think it's also important 
important whenever you're establishing a new garden. Remember your first garden may be your worst garden because it takes time to establish those perennials and those pollinator plants and those herbs that are all part of feeding the whole ecosystem. And make sure to install those pollinator plants that are going to be there each season because they're going to help with your long-term success of your garden. Yeah, there's a flower garden, her gardener. Her name is Lisa Ziegler, maybe. She's on the East Coast. And last time I had her, she's been on the podcast multiple times. Last time I had her on the podcast, she said 20% of your garden should be pollinators. Wonderful. And a lot of those pollinator plants can be herbs. Uh, yes. They can double oh, as yes. herbs. Uh-huh. And so they're not only like just beautiful and good food for the, for, for the environment, but also can be great food for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The basil and oregano, when it goes to flower, I mean, it's just covered with pollinators. Let's see if we can get through these questions. Les says, so confused by organic labeling in garden stores. That's not USDA organic. It is my understanding that if it says organic on it, that is USDA organic. Is that not the truth? Do you know if that's the truth? Hmm. Yeah, USDA labeling, as far as I understand, it refers more to the food component mm. and organic certification for soils. <laughs> there are many different agencies and organizations that can certify COF or APFCO, or there's quite a few. I'm like out of my soil game right now, but uh, yeah. One of them's one of them's all certified. That's what we want, Omri. right? Yes, Omri. Thank you. Yeah, so what you're yeah, looking Omri for less is... Omri listed fertilizers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he said that's not just plant. Let's see. So alfalfa supplement could be GMO. Absolutely. An alfalfa supplement could be GMO. Similarly, bone or blood meal could be from animals raised on GMO. That is also the case. So absolutely. You can get organic things of all of these. But even if it doesn't have an organic certification, I wouldn't say don't use it. I would say just ask about the source. And honestly, I I use alfalfa that's not certified organic. And I know that the soil is going to break that stuff down. Soil has amazing properties. And I'm not saying like just buy whatever, organic or not organic or whatnot. Just be educated about it and be aware of where it comes from and how it was treated. And as well, like how the animals were treated, because I prefer not to sort of buy into a system, even if it's their waste material. Like, I, I don't really want to support a system that like um, feedlots, for example, for cattle. And that's where most of the steer manure that's found at big box stores is from, frankly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, on the other hand, given we're going for organic certification in the next three years, I'm only going to use organic. It'll be Omni yeah. certified and organic like that. Les also says, I have started a few raised beds on legs in Arizona, don't like them. Are there worms, pill bugs, and good critters in Arizona soil? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Oh yeah. I My garden beds less at the urban farm in Phoenix, in the ground when I was there, were two feet thick of amazing topsoil that I built over the course of the 30 years that I lived there. So yeah, just get into this dirt and make some nice amazing healthy soil yep just keep plugging at it and it's amazing how quickly it goes by it really is yeah. you know that right that... <laughs> yeah exactly t wants to know do you have to have your garden shaded in maricopa secondly can creosote cuttings go in your compost pile so Start with creosote. Can we put creosote cuttings in the compost pile? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think what, what this question is coming from is about phytotoxin. Mm. Another question that comes up a lot is eucalyptus. Yes. So some, some plants have phytotoxicity to help them sort of outcompete their neighbors whenever they're growing. But the fact is that when these plant materials are no longer living, then they are no longer conducting these phytochemicals. Uh. And once composted, um, they're absolutely rendered inert. They're no longer able to cause an effect. And there's been scientific studies done on that. So nice. compost your creosote away. And the other question was about... Shading your garden in Maricopa. Oh. 
So you don't have to, it just depends on what you want to grow. So if you're growing something that would really benefit from having shade, absolutely. Or grow crops that require direct sun, six to eight hours for most vegetables every day. And if you grow regionally adapted vegetables and fruits, you're going to be fine. And so one example I can give on this is is squashes. Here in Tucson, there are beautiful Tahona Autumn squashes that have been selected over thousands of years to thrive and grow very well in this environment because they're selected from native plants. And so they grow very well. But meanwhile, I'll go to my garden where I've got a few zucchinis growing, which are very different and not native nor descended from crop wild relatives. They're so wilted and they don't bounce back and they require so much more water. So that doesn't mean that you can't grow your favorite vegetable that you're just craving to grow. Do you just need to make amendments like mulch a lot and put some shade up to to make the conditions nicer for them? Let's not go past green mulch. One of the things that I found in, oh my gosh, 2017. So what's that? Six, seven years ago is in my front yard at the urban farm, underneath the green mulch, and my green mulch was either cow peas or sweet potatoes. Yes. The temperature of the ground was 50 degrees cooler in the summertime, in the afternoon, yes. than uncovered soil. So, yes. And that's the difference between your plants making it and not. Yes. Thank you, Greg. How could we not talk about that? But it's like the plants are actually transpiring. They're actually kind of exhaling moist air. (laughs) And so that's why it's even cooler underneath a green or a living mulch, that symbiotic relationship between living plants and as a mulch. But but you can also get great benefit from straw mulches or composted mulches that I think is usually up to 30 degrees cooler yeah. under those mulches. So mulch away, just mulch it. That's my bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Claudia says when adding compost or nearly composted organic matter to raise bed beds, how thick should it be since it's doing double duty as mulch and a soil amendment? Yes. I always say two to three inches because I I want that water when I irrigate or when I hand water, like I really want it to get through. And if it's too thick and too absorbent, then it really kind of doesn't reach the root zone. So it's going to be different for everybody and also the environment that you're in and so many other conditions, like if it's shaded and where you're growing and what you're growing. So I kind of aim for one to three inches of mulch because I use a fine composted mulch that allows for lots of water to go through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's distinguish that. So for me, mulch is like woody mulch and it needs to be composted. So top mulching, you when you're top mulching in your garden, you want to be putting something down that's mostly broken down. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Because again, we're going to go back to where we started, but like the soil, sorry, the organic material that you can identify leaves and twigs and all those types of organic materials that are not yet decomposed, that's not yet soil. And you want to plant in soil top with mulch. So your compost that's fully decomposed goes into the soil, mulch goes on top of the soil. And eventually over time, it breaks down. Yes. Yeah. Tom says pine needles and for compost, absolutely pine needles. They're more acidic. So that's really actually good in the low desert. Yeah. Yeah. And I've done a little research about this as well, because one of the common questions I used to get was if I put coffee grounds into my compost, is it going to make the soil more acidic? And similarly, it will affect the needle like a little bit, but not a lot. Frankly, putting something acidic like coffee grounds or pine needles into your compost will not drop the pH or and vice versa. You can't just put something that's alkaline on your acidic soil and organic material and just expect it to change. Frankly, it's the microbes that are going to over time and the organic Mm -hmm. matter that's going to over time change and buffer the pH. We're starting to kind of delve into some really technical terms here, but like that buffering capacity is at with age and with time. And the compost is the great normalizer for your soil. Yes. 
Yes, right? it's it, the it multitasker. Can, yeah, it can make bad soil into great so good soil. Yes. Tom wants to know where's your farm garden at. My mission garden is in Tucson, Arizona, and it's at the base of Sentinel Peak or Chukshon, which is at the base of the Black Hill in Autumn. And so it's open to the public and we do, we're open for people to come in and learn and walk through history, tasting history. Yeah. Can you put too many coffee grounds in compost? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Uh, I in your, say... Direct in your garden, you can. Yeah, yeah, diversity compost. is key. You want that balance of browns to greens. And there's whole books written about this topic. There's oftentimes the Cooperative Extension has a really nice publication on composting for your area. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's a really good one that the Arizona Cooperative Extension has put out because we live in a dry climate and compost requires water. So I would say I'll kick that one to, to your local Cooperative Extension, but yeah. make sure you've got the right balance of browns and greens. Azomite. Somebody is asking about azomite and I'm looking that up now. Do you know much about azomite? Yeah, I think that's, that one is a mineral compound naturally occurring. Yeah. From Utah. It's OMRI listed organic and it's a, an acronym, A-Z-O-M-I-T-E. We sell it in our general store and we can ship it to you also. And it's got like 70 micronutrients in it. So... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is a mind material and I grow a beautiful garden. So I think you could geek out on as, as much as you want, but really I try and mimic nature and but, provide yep. balance. And I don't think that anybody should feel like they have to mine something and ship it across the country in order to grow. Yeah. Local for Arizona as a mite's great because it's one state over. There's green sand and there's other things here that that help bring the nutrients in. And the truth, once mm -hmm. the soil is healthy, once the microbes are healthy, they're mining those nutrients out. What we have to do when we're planting trees and starting our garden is give them the boost that they need in order to get going. But once once you have healthy soil and healthy soil requires that you don't put chemical fertilizers, pesticides and herbicides in your gardens. Once you have healthy soil, you're, you know, eventually, according to Elaine Ingham, you shouldn't have to be adding anything except compost. Right. Yeah. And I'll just put in another plug because it really matters. Grow varieties that do well in your region and in, yep. in your particular environment. Don't try and garden uphill. And I mean that metaphorically. Go yeah. with the flow and you will have better success. Yeah, it's much yeah. easier to grow things that are already well adapted to the area. All right, we got three minutes left. I'm going to call it, and we have three questions. Okay. Do, you know what, do you know what OMRI stands for? It's a certification. Organic Materials Review Institute. Very good. I'm impressed. <laughs> so that's, and yes, it is a certification, and it's organic, and, yeah. it's, for, and it's for fertilizers. Kendall yeah. uh, says... And this is, a, this is, this, we could go down a deep, slow, deep dive on this one, but we got to keep it quick because the answer is it depends and we don't know. Kendall says, I have pests eating my garden faster than I can grow it. It was recommended to me to alternate safer soap and neem oil. How often do I apply each and how long after the soap do I wait to apply the neem? Oh boy. Well, first of all, you need to know what your problem is. So exactly. <laughs> What are you treating for? What kind of pest is it? And often you can add a predator for those pests, right? Right. Just first identify what it is. It's like saying, I don't feel good. And then just popping a bunch of pills. It's like first know what you've got. And that requires you to use your observations. And again, kind of drawing upon the conversation that we've just had, teaming up with, uh, with local gardeners, if you can't figure it out or calling up your extension, or maybe you have a great local nursery nearby. Yeah. You're the ext cooperative extension office for your state is a gold mine for helping out 
with problems like this. Yeah. Right. Although I must say, just before we go to the last question, sometimes I find the cooperative extension can be a little bit shy on their familiarity with organics. And so just be prepared for that, that you yeah. may need to think about a, an, an organic option if you're met with that. Yeah. And we help a lot with that, with the urban farm. A lot of the stuff that you need to grow your garden with, you can find at store.urbanfarm.org and we ship, just saying. So that's store.urbanfarm.org. The final question is to me, Les wants to know what happened to the urban farm. Let me tell you guys, I couldn't be happier with the people that ended up purchasing the urban farm. They ran for 10 years prior to purchasing the urban farm. They ran a community garden for homeless people in downtown Phoenix. They are an incredible family and they're doing great work with it. So yeah, that I'm just, yeah, that, that was a huge gift to me that I found somebody that into what I was doing. So any final thoughts, Miss Emily? Oh, I would just say stick with it. Please don't give up. My own father moved here to Tucson to be closer, closer to me. And his first garden here was so frustrating to him. He's been growing for a long time. And I kept having to say, grow this variety. That one's not the right one. Or it's not the one for Northern California where you moved here from. And like, I don't see any mulch out there. And remember, this is your first garden and it takes time to build that bank of soil nutrients and to let the fungi and the bacteria connect and meet each other. And so it's getting better and better. So I will just say, stay with it and find a garden buddy. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. If somebody wanted to get a hold of Mission Gardens, how do they do that? Yeah, missiongarden.org. All right. My email address is on there too. And that's singular, missiongarden.org. Yes, it's the only one. Well, no, oh. not really. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everybody. We had an amazing crowd tonight. Yes, this thank will be, you so much. This will be live on our podcast in about a month. Um, so you can listen to, if you want to listen to it again, you can, and we're getting a lot of thumbs up and clapping and thank you. And thank yous. You bet. We will have uh, next month. We have a soil expert coming in on the garden chat. So yay. Thank you all everybody. And have a good evening. Much appreciated. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the urban farm podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.